Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Wathorong people of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am your host, Carolyn, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of the Arts and Social Sciences, Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I am absolutely honoured to be joined by Jason DeLeon. Jason is a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. He received his PhD in anthropology from Penn State University in 2008 and earned a bachelor's degree in anthropology at UCLA in 2001. His dissertation research focused on the development of early political economy and stone tool production among the ancient Olmec of Mesoamerica. He is also the executive director of the Undocumented Migration Project, a long-term anthropological study of clandestine migration between Latin America and the United States. The project uses a combination of ethnographic, visual, archaeological and forensic approaches to understand and visualise migration. Anthropology accolades aside, Jason is an avid photographer and has written several meditations on the use and place of photography in ethnographic practice. And it is this intersection that we are touching on in today's chat. But before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. I would love to know what you think. So without further ado, here is my chat with Jason DeLeon. to know I think something that you said recently in your chat with Susan Mizellas is that if you weren't an anthropologist you would be a photographer and I'd love to hear a bit more about your journey kind of coming to that conclusion and and your journey in photography. You know I came to photography pretty late how old was I I was this was probably seven eight years ago when I really started to get serious about it and this was partly because I've been collaborating for a long time with a, a person named Michael Wells who's a photographer and we had started a new project in southern Mexico on smuggling, and his wife was very pregnant at the time, and, um, and so he was not able to, to travel to the field that year. Uh, and he basically was like, and, he's, and he had kind of done this to me before, like the pictures I took in the, in the land of open graves were pictures that I took because he wasn't around. You know, he, had, he was like, look, here's a camera you can get. It's, it's pretty easy to operate, you know, take your own pictures. And I ended up doing that for this project in southern Mexico on, on smuggling, and you know, I came back from the field that summer, just totally enthralled by photography and, and really wanted to get just much better at it. And it was the first time that I really understood, you know, I'd, I'd given Mike so much over the years about, you know, he's got a pretty extensive collection of photography books. And, you know, those books are can be expensive, and they, you know, and then they can accrue in value, like r- ridiculously. I mean, they, they only make, you know, 500 of them. And then suddenly the a book you buy for 60 bucks now goes for $1,000. So I used to give him shit about how much he would spend on these photography books. And, and I would say to him, I don't understand how someone can just keep looking at the same book over and over again. That seems really r- ridiculous. And then when I figured out that photography was this thing that I just became totally obsessed with, 
then I got it and, you know, found myself sitting and looking at the same books over and over and over again. But I started taking pictures in 2015. I began shooting digitally, basically just got a, like a Fuji X-T1 mirrorless camera, a couple of lenses and shot that summer. I came back and I had way too many pictures. It was just a lot of, you know, just digital, just crap. But I was really excited about about image making. And I found that I was spending all this time in Lightroom trying to make digital photos look like analog photos. So then I was just like, fuck it. I don't like why I'm wasting so much time on this. Let's just shoot analog instead. And so I made the jump to analog that, that year. And, you know, I started taking courses at my community college. I started taking, you know, some, you know, photography workshops and probably for two or three years, I don't think I, I mean, I read very little. I I definitely was not reading ethnographies during that time, but I was just like taking a crash course in the history of photography and then just found myself spending so much time looking at images. And I did that for, yeah, at least two or three years, totally obsessing about every aspect of it. And, and yeah, and then since then I'm still kind of totally obsessed. And, you know, when I, when I was talking to Susan Mysalis, I think that one of the things that struck me, you know, I just wasn't familiar with her work before. I wasn't familiar with many photographers before I got interested in it and her work just really spoke to me in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I found it to be so ethnographic and so interesting and just, you know, I love the, just her, the way that she sort of visualizes things. And I think if I had found that earlier on, I probably would have, um, you know, gone in that direction because I'm fascinated by both the practice of image making, but also then what happens when you put cameras in interesting or difficult situations and, and what comes of it. So, you know, her, her work was definitely one of these things early on that was that was super, super inspiring. And how do you feel that sort of the switch to analog sort of helped develop your process in sort of that slow and deliberate kind of way that I know you've described uh, film photography before? I, I think the joke is analog photography is great if you don't like convenience or economy. All right. So, I mean, it's uh, you just spend a lot of money on film and on repairing these cameras that, you know, were built 30 to you know 80 years ago. Um, but I will say that that for me, I struggle. When I pick up a digital camera these days now, I'm like, ooh, get this away from me. I, like, I just have no desire to touch it. And I think it's because I love the tactileness of, of an analog camera, first and foremost. I mean, just the way that the cameras feel, the weight of them, the, you know, the haptics of like advancing film. There's just something about those. And the cameras for me are kind of like, like certain musical instruments, especially like guitars. Like certain guitars just feel incredible in your hands. And there are, you know, there are cameras that I have that I just, I could sit there and, and touch those cameras for hours just looking at them and just being so fascinated by it. So, you know, part of it was that. But I think most importantly, it slowed me down in, in really important ways. And I found that I would, you know, this idea of, of chimping, right? Where you take a picture digitally and then you look at it and I'll just take it again, you know, look more natural this time or you know, let me adjust. And I, and I hated that. I, I felt like that was really distracting me from from what I was there to do was you know which was which was to kind of be present in the moment and so the camera the shift to analog I think really freed me up from having to think about did I get that shot or not which of course means you can get home and have a roll of film with nothing on it because you loaded the film incorrectly or because you opened it up on accident when you didn't think there was film in there but I'm totally fine with that and you know I, I like I said I love the slowness and not worrying about if I got the shot and then I also like the fact that I have to make a whole bunch of premeditated decisions before I go into the field. Like you can't really, you can't clean that up in Photoshop. You can't make it look like something else. Like if I'm, if I'm shooting black and white or I'm shooting color, that's what you're going to get. And obviously you can make a color photo black and white, but, but you, you can't do the reverse. But also, you know, deciding what kind of film to use, what speed to shoot it at. I, for me, those are all critical, like ethnographic or methodological questions. And so I, I love having to think about that ahead of time and go, okay, you know, like the, the current project on Smugglers, it's a mix of color and black and white and instant. I think largely now I'm a black and white 
film shooter almost exclusively. But during the course of the second book, I was shooting color when we were outside and it was bright daylight. And then I was shooting black and white inside and at night, partly because I needed faster film speed and that you can't really push color film that fast. So, I, you know, these were kind of decisions that were, that were made made ahead of time and they give those different moments, particular feels. And and I just, I love that, that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff ahead of time. And then there's like the security issues. Like I go through the airport, no one's going to confiscate my film. You know, they definitely would go through my camera and look at, look at what on memory cards. But I love that, you know, that, that stuff is completely hidden from, from people until it gets developed. And then people are also less likely to steal my stuff too. When they look at it and go, why would, what would I do with a 75 year old, 80, 80 year old camera? You know, who, who the hell still shoots film kind of thing. But I really would say at the end of the day, it's the, the slowness of it. And then just the feel, I don't think there's any, any substitute for like a, a good analog camera in your hands. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here because I totally feel the same way. I think like a great camera is kind of, it, it, it does feel like an extension of, of yourself almost. Like you're saying, you can just keep playing with it all the time and it's just, it's kind of there and you pick it up and you know exactly what to do with it at the exact, like the right moment and things like that. I'm really curious though about sort of this intersection that you briefly touched on between sort of camera and all of those decisions that you make sort of prior to actually taking a shot and your I guess research and and interviewing people and how those camera decisions impact what happens in those interviews from both like a research perspective and a and a visual perspective and vice versa as well in the curation process perhaps of those images. I want to say one more thing about camera equipment. We did a workshop at the AAAs a few years ago, a three-day series on photoethnography. And one day was like, was like layout. One day was, one day was like maybe photo voice. And then one day was equipment. And, you know, for me, it's just a great excuse to bring a million cameras to show off and have people get excited about stuff. But someone in in the room said something like, I don't want to get carried away with like fetishizing the camera or like, it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just a tool kind of thing. And I think that's a totally wrong approach. I think that it, it is just a tool, but it's an important tool. And I think figuring out the, the correct one, understanding how they work is crucial. I mean, I, and I, I think there's a lot of people who are very dismissive of photography because they don't understand how difficult it is to actually do it. And so they'll say things like that, like, oh, a camera is just a camera. Any dummy can take a picture. And, and I just think that, you know, you, if you want to be taken seriously, I think you have to understand how your equipment works and then also be able to have rationale for why you're doing what you're doing. So, you know, I, and I think we're very far behind the curve right now in terms of like still photography and anthropology. I mean, people are starting to do it more now, but, you know, everybody wants to make documentary films. And I think for me, part of the problem is that anthropologists have very strong opinions about photography, mostly because it's had such a problematic history in the discipline. But I would say the bulk of those people have only read one book by Susan Sontag and one, and, you know, maybe they've read Camera Lucida and they think now suddenly that they're experts on image making. And I just think that, you know, if you want to do photo ethnography, you have to really, you have to understand the history of the discipline of photography, photographic theory, and then the mechanics of it, like how cameras work, how different cameras work. And then, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of like the exposure triangle, which I think most people, we, you know, we don't get that training. And so we end up just being, I think, very dismissive of it, uh, which I think is totally unfortunate, you know, but to your question about, you know, these decisions that would, that's one of my arguments is like, okay, if you're going to go and do a photo ethnography, my first questions are, what are you going to shoot? How are you going to shoot it? Who are the things, what are the things that are interesting to you that you want to document? Who are the people that you are sort of building from? Who are the photographers that you are trying to emulate or that are, that are inspiring you? And so when I go into the, into the field, I'm thinking about all those things. And it doesn't help that I'm obsessive about certain things. Like I can pack for a trip. I can pack for a three-day trip and I might just throw whatever, I, whatever clothes I find on the floor into a bag and go. But I will spend a week 
thinking about what cameras to bring and you know what lenses and what camera bags i mean it's because I, I want I want to make sure that I'm prepared for things that can happen, but I also want to make sure that you know if I'm going to photograph something that I've got the right tools and then I'm 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 thinking about it because you only you only get one chance to do these things and so you know deciding okay what's what's the camera I'm going to use what are the lenses I'm going to use what's the film I'm going to use those all have to be made up up front and and then asking myself those questions then shapes also what I go and photograph and how I engage with people. I mean, so it's, it's this kind of process. Um, and um, I love like David McDougall's work on, on image making, you know, he's got this beautiful essay about the relationship between subject, the photographer, and then the camera itself. And I just love thinking about, I'm adding this new element to this mix where now the camera itself becomes a whole part of this, of this ethnographic moment, including like how people are going to respond to you taking pictures, you know? And so if you're shooting with a giant, like, I don't know, like fucking safari lens, you know, that, that's people react to that in a different way versus if you're shooting with, you know, with something that's, that's, that's much less in, in, intrusive. And I think oh, those are all really important questions to ask. Uh, and I tell students like when they're getting ready to go to the field, like if you're going to take pictures, I think the number one camera that you have to have with you is also an instant camera because people love to get copies of those photos. It's such a rare thing these days. And it also is a way, I think, to disarm people about the image making process itself. Um, so I'm, those are things that I that that I that I constantly think about as I'm preparing to go out into the field. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, depending on what film speed you're shooting on, and and whether it's color or black and white, depends on where you sort of like place your and and conduct your interviews as well. And it's really interesting to think of photography as kind of like this tool that is almost in play in unison with like the the interview ethnographic process. When do you introduce or choose to introduce a camera to into your research and into the people that you talk to? Is it is it something that's kind of immediate that you sort of establish straight up or is it something that you bring in a bit later once those relationships have developed more? When I'm in the field, I always have a voice recorder on and I always have a camera around my neck. And so people, as soon as we meet, I say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at taking notes, so I want to record everything. And, and if you don't like that, that's totally fine. We're just not going to be able to work together. Um, but that's part of my process is introducing the, the voice recorder on day one. And the same thing with the camera. I mean, the camera is always around my neck and I, I immediately start taking pictures, but I usually start with the instant camera first. And that's what sort of people are like, oh, okay, I, 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 I get what you're doing and, you know, sure, take my, take my picture kind of thing. But yeah, that's, that happens now, like immediately, day one. And how do you find people's reaction to you with the camera? Like like you said just before, it's kind of sometimes the camera dictates how people kind of respond back to you. So I guess my question is, what is your preferred sort of kit? What do you like to work with and why? And, and how do people tend to respond to that? The analog cameras, I think people are really fascinated by them too. And that sort of helps. They're like, they're unfamiliar. I mean, a lot of folks that I photograph have never even seen a film camera, right? They grew up in an age of everything has been digital. And so I think that the, the, the cameras become kind of a novelty. And of course you can have different, you know, I've got like a big, you know, four by five field camera, which I don't, I don't really, we have used that in the past. Um, but I, I tend to shoot, you know, a mix of 35 millimeter medium format. But if I, if I had my preference, I would shoot everything at 1600 with a 28 millimeter lens. Mm. Um, very great, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, that's just kind of what, what I gravitate towards. I mean, especially you know, the, the photographers I really like these days are shooting black and white, shooting wide. Um, and I, I like, I like both the, the, the sort of texture of the grain, the feel that it gives, but then also going wide. I like being able to have a lot of stuff in the background. That's been like a, a kind of an ongoing, you know, learning process about figuring out which, you know, everyone argues about what, what's the, the perfect lens. And, um, uh, you know, for me, I've sort of landed on, on, on 28. Uh, so I have that. That's like my go-to. I have a Polaroid SX70 
that I will use. So I have a Fuji instant camera that I hand it off and let people shoot with it. And I, and I don't care if it gets broken um, and they can, and it's cheap to keep shooting. That, that film is relatively inexpensive, but then I have an SX 70 Polaroid that, you know, is a, is a pricey camera and the film is like, you know, two bucks a shot. And so that's, you know, I, I will shoot instant. I mostly shoot portraits with that. And then I have a, I'll, you know, I'll have a medium format camera as well if I want to shoot something else. And I, and I was at one point trying to use a medium format camera, like a SLR, which just gets really expensive. You only get, you know, 12, 10 to 12 shots. And um, so that was a little pricey, but, I, but I've done a mix of those things. And I, and, and I have a, a Pentax 672, which is a big SLR kind of thing. I don't have it here because it's, it's being repaired. Um, and then I also have a, a, a Raleigh Flex, which I've, which I've been using more and just a much smaller, um, you know, medium format camera. The Pentax is the one with the big handle, right? From memory. I think. Yeah, that you can put that on there. Yeah. 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 I've got a mate that shoots with that. And I remember he brought it out once and it just demands attention from everyone. Everyone gets really excited by it. It's yeah. It's really interesting how different cameras kind of, um, kind of bring out this different energy in the people that you kind of put them in front of. Coming back to your chat with Susan, something that you said that really stuck out to me is sort of looking at the opportunities for the photograph to extend beyond something just illustrative. And I think this kind of speaks a little bit to just people's general assumptions of what the opportunities that visual ethnographic processes can be in terms of, you know, a lot of people think of like moving images and, and not just still images and but still images have so much more of a life beyond being something that is just illustrative. And I was wondering, how do you see this sort of conversation between research and photographs sort of playing out more as time goes on? Well, I think ethnographers are notoriously terrible photographers and and tend to not think much about images, but we use them. We all bring cameras to the field. Um, people people use photos they take in the field, presentations and for papers and for articles and books. But I would argue that 90% of ethnographies, if you took out all the photographs, it would not change those books one bit. Because a lot of those photos, I think, are really redundant of the text. Like, oh, and then I was on a street corner in, in Honduras. Here's a photograph of a street corner on, in Honduras. And I think that, you know, we, we tend to think about like the images as something that we need to confirm that we were there or to illustrate this point in, um, in a different way. And I think that's a really like short-sighted and really undersells the power of photography. But I was very much in that boat as well. I mean, if you look at like the images in Land of Open Graves, a lot of those images are just like, there's some images there that I think are, are, are kind of redundant with, we don't necessarily you know need them. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't very savvy at the time thinking about images. I mean, there were things that I, I was starting to think about the beginning of, and now let us praise famous men, the Walker Evans and James Agee, you know, um, that, that book begins with a whole bunch of Walker Evans's photos, and then you get the text. And that's kind of what, you know, and that's what I was thinking about with Land of Open Graves with, with there's like five or six photographs that happened in the very beginning. And the idea was, you would look at these images and they would sort of prime you for something or you would think about them in a certain way. And then by the time you finished the book and went back to those images, you would be thinking about them in, a, in, a, in I think, in a, hopefully in a different kind of way. But I think we need so much more of that. And we need to ask, you know, if I was an editor, I would be asking people, why are these photos here? What do these photos do for your argument? What do they do for your text? And I think that we've never been trained to do that, most of us. And I think you can put those images into into conversation with with the text in really fascinating ways, but people also get really uncomfortable about it. I mean, the first version of Land of Open Graves, there were no captions on any of the photos. And so the editor came back and were like, you need to have captions on these photos. And I said, well, why, why is that? Well, people aren't, people aren't gonna know what they're looking at. So, well, they don't know what they're, what they're looking at. And I haven't really done a good job of explaining things and putting these pictures in the right context, you know? 
Um, so they were like, look, you need to have captions. So then I went back and I wrote captions, but most of the captions are other kinds of levels of, of data, or it's me playing with words. And, you know, like, in, like there, an example is a, like a photograph of, of this woman, Maricela Zawipuya, whose body we found in Arizona. And there's an image of her, you know, in the desert, and she's got a blanket covering up her body. And the, I think the, the caption just says, you know, esperando, which in Spanish can mean either waiting or can mean hoping. And, you know, and so, and she's got two vultures sort of circling over her head, but th that was me then thinking like, okay, what can I do text wise to, to play with this image, to put these things kind of into, into conversation in a, in a different sort of way. But we really just don't get that. As far as I'm concerned, there are very few good photo ethnographies. There's lots of great photography books that are ethnographic. There's only a handful, I think, of ethnographies that use photos in an interesting way or even have good photos. Um, and so we just don't have a lot of precedent for this stuff. And I think people aren't really, if you're just looking at ethnographies, I think it, it, it becomes really hard to get inspired about how to use you know, photography. You have to go to that, to that genre to, to kind of learn these things. Let's talk about open graves a little bit because I read it as part of my study and I really, really loved it. And I think it's interesting because I was rereading parts of it before we started our chat today. And I found that photography and cameras play quite a large role in land of open graves, graves from like your own research methods with motion sensor cameras to the use of cameras and photographs by migrants as both a documentation tool and personal keepsakes, as well as like border patrol surveillance methods. And even your words are very, very visual and visceral. So I'm sort of wondering, you use a variety of different photographs through the, through the book. So you have the photographs taken by you, the photographs taken by Michael, the photographs taken by um, Memo and Lucha when they are doing their crossing. How did you see all of these sort of photographic elements, including the ones that you used for sort of your research methods when you were um, looking at the vultures how did all of these pieces come together to create this like sort of greater puzzle piece you know i knew that i wanted images in there and it, and part of it was because you know there had been books like like jao beale's vita and philippe orguan jeff schoenberg's righteous dope fiend danny hoffman's book first book war machines Th those had been like photo ethnographies that i was sort of excited about um and I knew when it came down to to this book, you know, Mike had been taking pictures since the beginning of the project. And that was mostly just because, um, you know, he wanted to come down. He wanted to come to the field. I, I sort of figured that we would need photographs for stuff and, and it would be much better for him to do it than me. Um, but then as we as we got deeper and deeper into it, I started realizing that, you know, these images can do different kinds of things. Um, and, and I started pulling from all, a bunch of different places and I wanted to have as much representation as possible from folks like Memo and Lucho who took their own pictures. But then there were other things, you know, like, so part of it, it's like thinking about photographs as serving multiple purposes. Like there's a the evidentiary kind of perspective where a body, someone dies, here's a picture of that person, this really happened, or here are vultures, you know, consuming this pig in these forensic experiments. I want you to see what it looks like because it's, it's important to have that visual to, to, to understand what happens to the bodies of, of migrants. But then, you know, with like Memo and Lucho, those images were more about th them being visible and them being able to tell their own story through a, a visual lens. And with, you know, with most migrants, you know, people will say, say things like, you know, are you sharing your work with them? Are they reading the stuff? I'm like, people don't want to read. Memo Lucho had no interest in reading the book, but they wanted to see their pictures. They wanted to see if they were in this in that book. And so the images in that sense really became important for them to be seen, literally. And then other moments, you know, some there are some moments there where 
where the images are just kind of illustrative of something that's that's going on. They're there to provide you with the visual that helps the words, I would hope. Like if you're reading about the desert and you see the desert, you having those two things together might might be better than just on its own. So much of photography is both what is presented to the viewer, but also what is left out and what is left to the viewer's imagination. And it's that navigation of capturing time. Uh, and I'm wondering how you work to that in your practice, because timing is very important in all practice, but I can imagine, especially in research practice, it would be something to be very considered. The thing I like about being an anthropologist who takes photographs is I'm not a photojournalist, you know, and I'm not, I don't need to get the shot. And there are some days where I'm in the field where I can shoot 15 rolls of film. And there's other days where I don't even take one picture. Um, and that's okay. Different days dictate different approaches. And so, you know, for me with, with timing, it's always like, does it feel right? I'm never really anticipating something. I mean, and I've, I've tried and I have done that. Like when I do street photography, you know, then I'm very much thinking, okay, like Cartier-Bresson, I'm, I'm trying to like imagine that things are about to happen and I got to get all these pieces to sort of fit together. Um, I like that exercise. I think that's a really, help, that's a helpful exercise to just do in general. And then that sort of carries over to this other other kinds of you know photographic project where I'm anticipating something's going to happen, but I'm not as overt about it in the field where I'm not going okay suddenly these guys are going to are going to come together and this is going to be you know the, the perfect three people in an image that will make this whole thing work. I mean sometimes it just does and I catch it, but I'm never really waiting for that and timing it. If if I if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. You know, and and Mike Wells, you know, he's he has this thing where he says he's not interested in taking one really good picture. You know, he's interested more in like, what can all the pictures together do as a collective? And, and, I, and I believe that too. I mean, I think that, you know, it's amazing when you take a good picture and you're like, oh, shit, I did that, you know, but it's rare. But th those images, I think, even if it's a, if it's not like a, a technically beautifully shot thing, or if it, like Sarkovsky would call like a lively image, even if it doesn't do that on its own, it might end up doing that when you put it into a sequence with, with other kinds of images. And so it's funny. I mean, I used to very much think about, oh, I need to get the shot. And then now I, I don't really think about that anymore. And and I've revisited a lot of images at the time that I took that I was like, oh, I, I didn't get the shot or this image doesn't really work, but it works now when I put it into conversation with another image, which was a, an unexpected thing for me to, to see. I think that like constant aim from a photography point of view to have that one single shot all the time and then to reproduce that over and over again and almost like one up it. And I guess like some of this too is very driven by like, Instagram because Instagram is like sort of it's almost like a one-shot wonder kind of platform it's really fascinating because I think you do lose some of the nuance and that detail that that having a sequence can actually really bring out in works because we can't ever hope to really I think capture everything in in one frame something like Instagram I find it to be a frustrating medium partly because the images are so small you know we're mostly looking at it on our phones and some of these images just need to be bigger you know, they need to be seen, they need to be blown up. There's so much more, you know, and, and Stephen Shore, he's got another book on um, photographs as like physical things. Um, I believe that's yeah. Stephen Shore. Yeah. I mean, he talks about, you know, grain, he talks about paper stock, all those kinds of, you know, so there's, there's so much more. I mean, this is like why it's important, like when I'm working with students, I'm like, look, you have to print out your images. You can't just look at them on a computer screen. It's important to, to print them out, to be able to touch them, to be able to move them around so that you get a sense of these other parts of it that you would lose, you know, if it's if it's yeah. stuck on a just on a digital platform. But I think most people don't think about those things at all. I mean, photographers do, but, you know, the normal people, I think, just uh, don't think that those are important considerations, even though I would argue that they're super crucial. There's definitely this kind of trend with the uptake of film photography, which we definitely love because it makes things a little cheaper. <laughs> people not collecting their negatives after they've shot a roll they just leave it at the lab right there's so much detail and things that you're missing by not having all of those images 
in like the contact sheet in front of you or just being able to like obviously go back and access those uh, negatives if you ever want to print or blow things up more it's crazy yeah i mean and those and those, those scans that people are getting most of them they're, they're really scans yeah you know so yeah i mean and for me like another thing about the about the analog is that i don't have to worry about a hard drive crashing and losing all those images because I've got all the negatives, you know, and they'll, they'll outlive me. Yeah, if my house is on fire, the first thing I take is my negative box. <laughs> yeah. Not the cameras, just the negatives, you know. <laughs> I've got like 10 years of work sitting in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering in what ways do you think photography and photographic theory, we talk a lot about sort of the gaze of the camera, the gaze of the photographer, also the gaze of, of the person or the, or the place being photographed. So I wonder how do you think that this photographic gaze and almost like the anthropological gaze as well are similar or dissimilar to each other? I think they're similar in a lot of ways. I mean, because, you know, anthropology, we were gawking at other people's lives. You know, we are documenting what they are doing. In a lot of ways, it's this kind of voyeuristic gaze. You know, both of them are. I think maybe the difference is that anthropology is more concerned about the ethics of that. I think there's a lot of photographers who take the gaze for granted and just make problematic images and don't think don't think twice about them. I remember I was in a photography class in this community college when I was at University of Michigan, and I was probably the most annoying student in the room. I was the oldest person in the room by 20 years. You know, so you have all these like freshmen who don't really even want to be there. And we're talking about all these things. And I could tell that the professor was like, okay, this is not the class to be asking those things. We're just trying to get, we just want people to make, to make images. And I sort of think about it as um, Seinfeld or Larry David, where he's constantly <laughs> talking. He's just, he's overly concerned about everything that's happening. And it's like this running dialogue about what, what's, you know, the nervousness that he has about things that are happening. For me, that's like, that's photoethnography in a nutshell is I am, yeah. I'm taking these pictures and I'm constantly like, oh shit can I take this picture? Can I ever use this picture? Oh my God, what's going to look, you know, that voice is with me the entire time I'm taking the pictures, the entire time that I'm editing, I'm sequencing. Every time I show those images or go back to them, it's that, that voice that I'm having. Whereas I think a lot of other people can just take pictures and walk away and not, and not feel, you know, that anxiety that we carry with us. I'm never going to be able to unthink of Seinfeld every time I'm out taking photos now. I had that journey as well, like when I first started traveling and taking images and encountering many different people from very different parts of the world. And I remember I went to a very concerted effort to work out in some of the places I was traveling, whether people had uh, religious aversions to being photographed, because that's definitely a thing. And working out how to navigate that, should I stumble upon something that I did really want to like photograph and investigate a bit more further. And it's hard because there's no guidebook really into photography ethics. You know, that like they have the journalism code of ethics, but that's different. You know, we have like ethics boards as researchers, but that's different as well. And I'm wondering how you navigate those power dynamics when you are out in the field and doing ethnography. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, contrary to, to journalists as well, some of the most intense moments that I've had in the field are moments I didn't photograph. I, I was sort of present in a different way and just the camera didn't, you know, just didn't make sense in that time where I was, I was trying to be, you know, be respectful, even though I, I would have probably liked to have an image. You know, I think in general, it's always like, are people going to be comfortable with me making this image? Like if I take this picture. So I don't photograph strangers. I mean, I really only photograph people that I know very well. Um, and I used to have this problem where I would be taking pictures of people, especially like smugglers, and people would stop and pose. And I would just get so pissed, like, please stop posing. I'm trying to make this look natural, you know? And of course, that's a stupid way to think about it. You know, who the hell am I to say how people should be in, in photos? If you want to pose, pose. So I've really tried to take cues from people. You know, I have a lot of, I have thousands of images of people smoking weed because 
they think it looks cool to smoke weed and have their picture taken. And people will tell me like, why aren't you taking a picture of this or take a picture of this? So I just, I sort of just let that, you know, of course I'm, I'm, I'm still taking my own pictures, but um, you know, I, I try to listen to them as much as possible. If we're on the, like the train tracks and I see a group of migrants, I'll never stop and be like, Hey, can I take your picture? Cause I'm like, what am I going to do with this, with these pictures of strangers? I might take a picture of people are like, Hey, get together. Let's make, let's make some photos. If I don't know them, that's a different story, but um, I don't, I don't sort of seek that out, but I, but I will take pictures of strangers. Like if people are hopping on and off a train, I might photograph that, but most of the time, you know, you don't see people's faces in those images. Um, so they're, you know, they're very, they're very anonymous. Um, and, and that's a, a heavily photographed kind of, you know, trope and the people who are on those trains know that as well. And they're posing for images on the trains, thinking that that's what, you know, what a journalist would want. That's what they assume that I am. That active role that people can play in the way in which they're visually seen is very fascinating. I also felt the same way, like initially when I came to photography, like, oh, I just want to be able to capture people doing their everyday life, you know, just hanging out kind of thing. And then I remember I went to MoMA in New York and I can't remember who it was, but I watched this documentary that was there at the time. And uh, the photographer was talking about how sometimes that posing and that awkwardness that kind of can come through between photographer and, and the person being photographed is real life as well. Like why should people feel comfortable in front of a camera or why should people feel okay with just a lens being sort of, you know, like a fly on the wall kind of thing. Like why isn't posing considered to be something that is a part of like natural life when a camera is present, you know, and that, that really changed how I went about working and navigating that space of a person with a camera in spaces with other people being photographed is very interesting. Well, there's a, a quote from Eugene Richards that I really love where he's talking about why he shoots with a with wide angle lenses. And he says, you know, I like the fact that I have to get very close to people to take their picture with a wide angle lens. But also, you know, when you get above like 24 millimeter territory, you start to get distortion at the edges of, of the images. And he says, you know, I really like the distortion. It tells you that what you're looking at is not real life. You're looking at this filmic moment, this interaction between me and this person, which is a real thing that happened, but you're, but I was there and I, and, and my presence there impacted all of these kinds of things. And I think anthropologists, we just can't shake this idea that we can somehow be flies on the wall. I'm like, yeah, we're, we're flies on the wall. We're giant flies on the wall that people are like, look at this thing on the wall. And so, you know, no matter what we do, we are changing things that are happening. And I think we need to get we need to get over that. Yeah. And so the, the photography stuff, you know, you can learn a lot about the person behind the camera by looking at the images that they make. Right. And you get a sense of, you know, what is the relationship like with the subjects? For me, that's a, that's a really fascinating idea to kind of think about. Like, can I if I look at someone's work, can I tell a lot about them? from that work. And I think you, you can with other photographers, but I think you, you, we need to think about it also ethnographically. Like what do those, what do the images tell us about the ethnographer? Yeah. All of those nonverbal cues between people in the image and, and thinking about that person behind it too. Bourdieu talks about that a little bit. I was reading um, photography, a middle brow art. He talks quite a lot about that. I mean, he's talking about more Photography is like a middle class kind of exercise in social relations, which is, and he talks about wedding photography, which is really interesting, but he talks a lot about travel photography and sort of the relationship that the photographer has between not only the person that they're taking a photo of, whether it's their partner, children, whatever, but also the wider uh, sphere of what is in the photo. So if you're taking a photo in front of the Eiffel Tower, uh, of someone smiling in front of the Eiffel Tower, it's 
your relationship with them as a photographer and a subject and then also why you're there why the Eiffel Tower is the is the postcard moment you know and what that says when you bring that photograph back home and you show people or put it on Instagram or put it on Facebook and stuff like that that dynamic between what isn't in that photo and who took it as well as the information that is encoded into that photograph is very fascinating I remember you said with Susan I think you were sort of asking a bit of a rhetorical question about you know why do we have this impulse to document and share and I wanted to ask you why you feel sort of so drawn to photography and so drawn to documenting and sharing in this visual way um just to throw your own question back at you <laughs> sorry no. I don't know I think it's partly because it it is so difficult to do it's like hitting a home run when an image moves you I find that to be a really powerful you know thing and so it's like I'm chasing something and I want to make an image that moves people in a, in a different way. Although I have the benefit of the image being in conversation with the text and that's a little bit easier, but I don't know. I mean, it's this obsession of, I look at these photos and I just go, God, I want to be this person. I want to make those things. I want to go out and I want to just, I don't know. The ethnography question for me is easier. You know, one, it's like, I have this like commitment to, to understanding certain themes, but I think also at the end of the day, I love ethnography because it fills some void in me or it, gives me something that I don't get in my daily life, like this intense connection with a stranger where I feel like I'm learning and I'm active and I'm, I'm giving a lot of myself to someone and they're giving it back to me. That's what, for me, like what makes ethnography so, so addicting. And then with photography, it's just like, I want to get that shot. I don't really know what that shot is. I'll never get that shot. I, I think I just, but I always want to keep, keep trying for it. I hate like the hunting metaphor, but it's like, I'm going out into the world and I'm trying to, I'm trying to make something from what I see. And I don't know where that came from. Cause I, di I didn't have it for a long time. It wasn't until I started, I actually, you know, it was like the, the matrix where I take the, you know, take the pill and suddenly I see all these things in a new way. When that happened to me with photography, then it was like, oh my God, I want to get out and, and I want to do this. You know, I, I want to be good at this. I don't know. I mean, the goal like with the work is not like, I'm going to get the best picture I can I've ever taken, but it's like, can I make a lively picture? Can I make a picture that you look at and it's, and you want to know more and it, your, your eyes move around and you're, you're inspired by it or you're, you're troubled by it. I want to do that. And that's not a very articulate kind of response, but I don't know. That's, that's what it is. And, uh, and of course it's an obsession, you know? Yeah. You can't stop now that you've started. It just, it overtakes your life. It's a certain way of existing and moving through the world. I find in my experiences, it's very weird how certain things that we do, they really take over your personality. You could be someone totally different beforehand. And then as soon as you pick up the camera, it's like, that is how you see the world and move through the world and sharing that with others is, yeah, very interesting. It keeps me active too. I mean, like I remember someone once saw me at an anti-Trump parade when I was living in Michigan and I was just all over the place, like taking pictures, like standing and climbing in trees, standing on chairs, laying on the ground. People were like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I'm trying to capture this thing and, and I can't explain why I'm doing the things that I'm doing other than the fact I want to make something interesting that I can look back later on and be like, oh yeah, I did that. Yep. Success for me is definitely still photographing at like 90 years old and climbing those yeah. trees and lying on the ground and doing all the weird poses and uh, yeah, and carrying the gear myself. That is my goal. Yeah. <laughs> I love that in the field too. I mean, I think I'm kind of fidgety in the field too. And so the camera gives me something else to like, it's, you know, I don't smoke anymore. Yeah. So it's like, it's like some other thing that I can, that I can be doing to, to keep busy. I have very bad anxiety. So for me, the camera is almost like a little shield it's become. It's a way of me feeling comfortable in spaces that would normally make me feel uncomfortable just because of anxiety. 
And so interacting with things and feeling like I have this, it's like a, like a golden ticket almost to be able to like go to that music festival or do that thing that I've wanted to do and, and interact with it that way. It's very, very cool. Thank you so much for joining me today and having a chat about photography and photo ethnography. It's been a real pleasure and super interesting. I'm wondering, um, just before we wrap up, uh, who, who are you most inspired by photography wise? Like who have been those sort of like rock stars for you in your journey with learning? Joseph Kudelka, you know, Kudelka's book, Gypsies, for me, those are the images I want to make. Gypsies and, and Exiles are two books that I picked up and was like, I don't know what the fuck this is, but I want to do this. I want to sort of be there. You know, Susan Mysalis's book, Carnival Strippers, was another one where it was just yeah. felt so ethnographic. And it feels like you're, the pictures, I think, make it feel like you're there. And also her book, Nicaragua. I tried to shoot color for a while because I wanted to make Nan Golden or Susan Mysalis mm-hmm. images. Um, that she was, but slide film is so incredibly hard to shoot with. And and I'm not someone who is really color minded. I just don't think about like color matching and color coordination with with images. I'm, I'm much more focused on like the the subjects, but not really what what they look like, but how they're moving around in space. And who else? You know, Robert Frank's The Americans. That was an early book that was really you know. I just love the kind of pessimism of it and America in the fifties and all of its sort of horribleness. There's a guy named Mike Brody. He's only made two books. I don't think he'll ever make another book again. He's now a like a train mechanic. He's got two books. He's got one that's all Polaroids. That's called Bone and Dirt. Oh yeah, he did um the Vagabonding series, right? Yeah, a period of juvenile prosperity. That's, that's yeah. The one. Yeah, I love that um, one. That's one of my favorites too. And I'd probably Eugene uh, Eugene Richards. Um, he's got a, his book, Dorchester Days, I think is just amazing. You know, he, he's like, Kudelka is probably the reason I shoot black and white. And Eugene Richards is probably why I shoot a 28 millimeter lens. <laughs> yep. I love that. It's interesting how um, we all have like our own research and photographic lineages. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. And I'm really excited to see how all of your projects shape up and really like going back through Land of Open Graves with a bit more of a critical eye to kind of like have a look at those images again. Um, yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. Hopefully we can, we can chat once this photography book is done. That is a wrap. Thank you again so much to Jason DeLeon for joining me on today's podcast. If you're feeling just as inspired as I am after listening to this, please do check out Jason's work with the Undocumented Migration Project via their website, undocumentedmigrationproject.org. And I know they're fundraising right now, so if you did get something out of today's podcast, maybe pop onto the website and give a little donation. Today's episode was produced by me with help from the other familiar strangers, Alex DeLoya, Simon Theobald, Claire Bazau, Timothy Johnson, Sean Liu, Matthew Fung, Joe Clifford, Jared Sim, and Runan Chang. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash thefamiliarstrange. You can find all of the show notes, including a list of the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. 
If you'd like to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>